If I had a tail, I'd own the night. If I had a tail, I'd swat the flies. Lyrics from Queens of the Stone Age, If I Had a Tail. There are many reasons people like Queens of the Stone Age. One of them is that they are awfully honest, sometimes brutally honest about human nature and society. In that song, If I Had a Tale, there's a lot going on, including commentary about society and its superficial nature, but also in its hypothetical look at what one would do if they had a tail, if you were an animal in nature. We're all really animals, but we have a society, we have a civilization that differs from nature itself. And I think most people would agree (laughs) that... The trade-offs of society and civilization are good ones that benefit everyone and that are ethical in a way that raw nature may not be. Actually, though, If I Had a Tail is a counterfactual in that the author of the song, the singer, does not actually have a tail, so it goes against facts that are in history or facts that are in reality. The song reminds me a little bit of Plato's allegory of the ring of Gyges in which the protagonist finds a ring that turns him invisible. And so Plato and the characters in Plato's allegory debate what they would do if they had the ring of Gyges. Or at least that's what we're supposed to do when we read it. So if you had a ring that turned you invisible, would you do things that are just or would you do things that are not? And the deeper meaning from all of that, it's not just a question about what you would do. It's actually a more philosophical question that it's a question about whether people do things that are right merely because of what people will think of them and what are the consequences of that action that they otherwise would not pursue. And in the song, If I Had a Tail, the main character is quite animalistic in his tendencies, but also remarks about how animalistic the rest of society actually is underneath. I want you to picture something. You wake up, it's a beautiful day, in late June, you're living in Europe and there happens to be a parade that day. You get your coffee, your significant other. You walk down to the main street. There's a whole bunch of people there. Everyone's in a good mood. You probably buy some sweet snacks or popcorn or whatever they might have at that time of year on the streets of Sarajevo. And you're thinking to yourself, this is going to be a great summer. Times couldn't be better. (laughs) In reality, it's the 20th of June, 1914. And neither you nor anybody else actually knows what is to ensue after that parade. In that parade, the Archduke of Austria-Hungary, Franz Ferdinand, will be shot by a member of the terrorist group, the Black Hand. That assassin's name was Gavrilo Princip, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. 
The events of 1914 are one of many examples used by the famed author and Wall Street trader Nassim Taleb. In his book, The Black Swan, he talks about how difficult it is to predict the events that really shape society and the events that can really either benefit or harm mankind and individuals. Other examples include the financial crash of 2008, the Wall Street crash of 1987, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and all these examples highlight our blind spot when it comes to risk. He makes the point that actually our minds are not meant to be counterfactual. Our minds are meant to react quickly, emotionally, instinctually, and that none of us would be here if our ancestors had pondered things heavily. But in reality, when it comes to risk in society and not just risk in nature, it actually takes a very sophisticated and trained thought process, one that can be counterfactual and can examine all the different things that could happen in the future, but also all the different things that could have happened in the past. The trope about learning from history in order to not repeat it is one that several historians disagree with and I also don't think is that helpful as a guide to why one learns history. And in this case, taking that trope literally is not really what we're talking about. We're talking about looking at the past and pondering logically and with a knowledge of society and politics and economics in a very sophisticated way, how things could have turned out differently, such as what if Martin Luther King had died from a stabbing he received well before he achieved the fame and success as our nation's civil rights leader? What would have happened for the civil rights movement? Some might argue that others would have picked up the mantle and some other hero would have risen, but that may be optimism and assuming that the future was predestined as opposed to an actual reality. If you've never read The Black Swan, the first chapter is available for free on the New York Times, and I'll link to it in the show notes. The whole book is worth a read. But in that first chapter, he uses an example which is pretty powerful for anyone alive on 9-11 and who experienced those events. Imagine a politician, a very forward-thinking and driven and let's call it focused on the right things politician ends up passing legislation that seals cockpit doors in a way where they can't be entered, can't be broken into or bulletproof. And let's say also there are some procedures around pilots going to the bathroom, etc. 9-11 never would have happened. One might argue that the terrorists would have found another way. Entirely possible, but for this thought experiment that Talib presents us, it's very possible, maybe even probable, that 9-11 never would have happened. Talib introduces the concept of, he calls it, a new kind of ingratitude. The ingratitude that goes toward, or gratitude that doesn't flow toward that politician because no one will consider him a hero. No one will thank him. He won't get any rewards. People may actually think that he wasted money, caused a lot of inconvenience for pilots and airline attendants and maybe even passengers as a result of new processes. That politician may have even made enemies in his own party or across the aisle. 
he might even not get elected again. And that's the kind of ingratitude that goes towards people who adequately prepare for risk. We talk a lot about risk, managing risk, estimating risk, the flaws of estimating risk on The Warrior Poet. This episode isn't really about black swans. It's not really about risk per se. It's about how counterfactual analysis is integral to assessing risk and to devising strategy. One thing that's clear in Talib's book is that our inability to accurately perceive and estimate and manage risk is intimately tied towards our lack of natural ability to engage in counterfactual thinking. And there's actually research that shows that counterfactual thinking engages more areas of the brain than hypothetical thinking. More areas of the brain means longer and more taxing for every second that you're engaging in counterfactual thinking. The reason for this increased engagement of the brain and increased cost to the human engaging in counterfactual thinking is because in counterfactual thinking, you need to maintain two states of the world in your mind at the same time. You need to maintain the reality of what is or the reality of what happened prior to today, as well as this other state that is not true. In a hypothetical, the reality that's postulated in the hypothetical may actually come true. And so there's no true dissonance. There's no strict dissonance with reality as it was or as it is. Because we are animals, even though we don't have tails anymore, we naturally want to engage in the behaviors that are least taxing and most efficient to survival as indicated in books like Sapiens, which I've recommended before and can't recommend enough. However, success in society, a technological society, a civilization built on layers and layers of knowledge requires more sophisticated thinking and thinking that often is at odds with our natural scripts. This need to think counterfactually is actually increased even more than I've laid out already. And the reason is because as societies have gotten more scale and have become more and more powerful technologically, whether those are weapons of war or tools of social media and software development, AI, risks and opportunities can result in impact that is many, many magnitudes greater in scale than was ever achievable in our more animalistic or tribal states. Those of you listening soon after this is published, maybe months after this is published, maybe years after this is published, realize we are in the middle of coronavirus. So astute listeners will have already asked me, Shri, who could have seen coronavirus coming? 
and that would be a fair point. There is a limitation of predictions. Things are, of course, getting pretty crazy and no one knows where things will go from here. I'm not an alarmist by any means. However, if Italy is any example for us, then we should act accordingly. The other day, just going shopping, stocking up on some things. I'm not exactly an extreme prepper. The grocery store was insanely packed and shelves were clear. I'm from Florida, so I'm used to the idea of hurricane shopping. But in this case, it was a little more extreme because damage wouldn't be localized potentially just like a hurricane would be. Obviously, Hurricane Katrina was a regional event, but for the most part, one could hypothetically depend on the U.S. economy, the world economy, humanitarian organizations, and other states and the federal government to help out in the event of a, a localized storm. Plus, you know the storm, the main damage is going to pass at some point after a day or two or three, except, of course, an extreme flooding like Katrina. And so you can be reasonably sure that you only need a few days of food and a few days of water. And batteries and candles. The funnest part as a kid of hurricanes and tornadoes in Florida is flashlights and candles. In terms of epidemics, looking at history can be very useful, though. I'm by no means a world health expert. But you could use data on spread of disease, and there are lots of sophisticated models and techniques for looking at this. People at the CDC, World Health Organization, NIH, specialize in this as their full-time job. And students get PhDs literally in this as a sub-science. That being said, societal reactions, the different progression of a given virus or bacteria, how it might mutate, incubation periods, all those things are insanely complex. And the impact of even seasonality, what part of the year it is, what the weather is like, where it originates, how it either spreads faster or slower via travel, all those things are extremely complex and modeling techniques can be imperfect. Probably, if one's a specialist in the field, often are imperfect. Despite how every pundit in these sorts of situations, whether it's a financial crash or a pandemic, will speak with a lot of certainty about things that cannot in any regard be certain. Besides coronavirus being super relevant right now, the reason I bring it up is because counterfactuals here can also be used by individuals and experts in terms of figuring out what a response should be, figure out how you should prepare Think about previous instances of food shortages or epidemics, reactions by certain presidents in other situations, and twist and turn those things and mash them all together in a way which is not true history, but can inform what you do in the future. So an example of a counterfactual could be, what if avian bird flu had spread more widely, what would we do right now? On the other hand, I like to say, even though this is premature, 
There have been thousands of deaths worldwide. Italy's health system is overloaded. Obviously, I don't want to minimize the impact of coronavirus, but I've been telling people around me that I think coronavirus is a great rehearsal for mankind because can you imagine if this was something as deadly and horrific as Ebola, for instance, and it was able to spread like this? I'm sure plenty of terrorists and nation states have tried to perfect that. Terrible to think about, but probably true. But the fact that we are dealing with coronavirus Hopefully we as mankind will get through this and it'll be a page in history within a year. No one knows, but um, getting our house in order as the world will serve to help a lot in the future because one thing we can know for sure is that this will not be the last epidemic. You know the worst thing about working in Times Square? You've had a hard day. You hit the street, come out the doors, and you just can't move because it's a sea of people. And it's not just a sea of people because it's New York. It's a sea of people because it's Times Square. And that sea of people is made up of not normal people. They're made up of this subspecies called tourists. And not just any tourists, but... New York City tourists in New York City. And no, that's not redundant because they're tourists of New York City, but they are looking at New York City in a way that tourists don't look at a lot of other cities. There are exceptions. Most people realize that there are lots of skyscrapers in New York City and Times Square has not only skyscrapers, but screens everywhere. And so when all you want to do is get home and get dinner or meet a friend for a drink or maybe do your side hustle these days and you can't move to the subway because everyone in front of you is stopping abruptly, that's the worst thing about working in Times Square. I say that I worked on Wall Street. I did work at a major investment bank and trading house, Barclays Capital. They had bought Lehman after the financial crash of 2008, very relevant to this episode. The Lehman Building, which Barclays Capital now possesses, I entered it, was situated in Times Square. For all intents and purposes, Wall Street. Counterfactuals are super useful in Wall Street where Nassim Taleb was born, so to speak. I was on the power trading desk. I traded powerfully. No, it was electricity, aka power, and natural gas because natural gas feeds into power. In power, it's not like stocks, equities, where you can trade large amounts of money, large amounts of stock for the most part, and no one will notice. And it has no impact on the market. Of course, having intentional impact on the market is known as market manipulation and is illegal, but still happens. Just to be clear, I never engaged in it. In power trading, it's a very illiquid market. So before you do anything, you need to evaluate every move. And so you look at all your past moves for the most part, except in the most liquid parts. There are some liquid parts. 
But if you need to get out of a position or you really want to get into a position, you need to look back into history of your moves and the hive mind of other traders around you about what moves they have made and really seriously think about what you're doing and how you're going to trade into or out of that position. This presents a problem, though. It strikes me as a somewhat circular issue, which is you're evaluating the future, but you need to realize that all the examples you had in the past, your moves may have had an impact on the market in ways that you actually don't understand, but which ended up benefiting you. And so you may be too swayed by your past moves. This is where having a mindset, a process, and a temperament that is inclined towards counterfactuals can help discount the benefit that you got while you were trading in certain ways or merely the luck you had. In that first chapter of The Black Swan, again, check out the link in the show notes to the New York Times. Talib mentions fashion as one example where counterfactual thinking is necessary and where black swans occur all the time. It is insanely hard to predict the next fashion trend. I worked at a fashion startup in e-commerce. It was the fastest growing company of 2011. It was known as Ideally. It's now known as Ideal. It got bought by Groupon several years ago. I was known as the air traffic controller there. I was in charge of figuring out what clothing to put on the site at the last minute, let's say the one day to three days before it was supposed to go on. And you can imagine a whole manufacturing process, if you will, of how to get clothes on a digital website. There's lots of steps between the time that a buyer decides they like a certain style and we need to sell it until it gets on the site. Sometimes things wouldn't be ready or sometimes things would be ready ahead of schedule. Sometimes we would need to make a last minute addition or subtraction based upon the needs of marketing or inventory, things being out of stock. And so I, as the air traffic controller, was in charge of figuring out what would go on the site, what sales, as they were called, to push out and which ones to pull in. There's no way to A, B, test these things. So for those who aren't in software, an A-B test is where you run two different designs or two different interventions on a website for different cohorts of traffic, otherwise equal in nature, and then compare the results so you can figure out what worked, gain insight, but also gain the benefit of employing the test that won for 100% of traffic. The variables involved at any given time at ideally in the fashion world were such that there was very little way for me to tell in retrospect what decisions were really good and which ones were bad. So there's another example of where thinking about what could have been, what might have been, what might have resulted, but didn't actually result from any given decision I made was helpful in thinking about the future. Because there's no way to A-B test, a lot of times there are gains to risk reduction which Nassim Taleb highlights in that 9-11 cockpit door example. There are also benefits to doing some extreme things where there's opportunity. So as 
an officer or NCO in the military might say, an aggressive plan violently executed is better than having none at all. Faster decision cycles also come into play and were crucial at Ideally. Deciding faster is better than deciding perfectly. Know what could really help you sort through these important issues? What? Orange mocha frappuccino! (laughs) (laughs) A final example of where I've experienced counterfactual thinking in an operation was certainly in the SEAL teams. After an operation, you do a debrief. In those debriefs, you go through how you executed every aspect of the operation to include planning all the way through to any intelligence you gained from that operation. In a debrief of a military operation, again, so many variables at play in that operation. Only a keen mind and an intentional process during that debrief can allow the participants to think about what might have happened, where they actually got lucky. There's a term near miss in aviation. I believe the term is also used in surgery, another place where debriefs are crucial. Accounting for near misses and really thoroughly investigating them, explaining them, assessing them, and coming up with next steps to mitigate near misses in the future is super important. A lot of times the tendency is in organizations to take a no blood, no foul approach to near misses. This is completely misplaced, but very natural as animals, tail or not. I found out kind of late in life that I'm a bit of a sci-fi guy. I don't like all of it. I don't nerd out about all of it. I hate Star Trek. Always liked Star Wars as a kid. And I've enjoyed some of Isaac Asimov's short stories. I seem to recall him alluding to counterfactual scenarios in one or more of his stories. I've only recently started reading Dune. I've been listening to the audiobook. I would link to it in the show notes, but it's horrible. The voices change between the same character. So one minute, it's a very deep, baritone, suave African-American guy. The next moment, it's some sort of cold British guy doing the exact same character. This happens for multiple characters. It's really, really terrible. The only reason I'm continuing is to just make it through at this point. I'll link to the actual book in the show notes, maybe on Kindle. I recommend you just start there. Do not start the audiobook. I cannot emphasize this enough. Anyway, without any spoilers of Dune, and I probably can't spoil it because I haven't finished it yet, the main character who has an alias that is the name Muad'Dib, he has the ability to see the future and the past, but it's almost like a butterfly effect sort of prescience where... He can see all the threads of possibilities through the past and all the threads of possibilities through the future. And he's almost like a Bayesian estimation engine where he's continuously calculating all the probabilities going from the past to the future and also his impact on it. 
There are many quotes in the book Dune on this. I couldn't find a great one that really encapsulates counterfactual thinking, but there is one from Children of Dune. I was able to find this. I haven't actually read that one. Hit me up on Instagram if you think I should read it. The future of prescience cannot always be locked into the rules of the past. The threads of existence tangle according to many unknown laws. That kind of quote is indicative of many of the sayings that separate the chapters of Dune. Final thoughts on counterfactual thinking. I'm curious how we can train ourselves to think in this way. Taleb's books provide a lot of background on black swans, counterfactual thinking, but I'm not aware of a playbook for this, so maybe we'll explore that in the future. Additionally, it's worth us all thinking about what the limits of counterfactual inference are. Those who are data scientists, machine learning engineers, know this much more deeply than I do, but there are limits to counterfactual inference in that world, which is much more mathematical and software-driven, but there are also limitations in our own minds about counterfactual inference, of course. Finally, what are the kinds of things where counterfactual inference is extremely useful in business or in politics? There must be some sort of framework about the kinds of things for which this is valuable. In any event, strategy is clearly one of them. Additionally, think of it this way. Some people talk about strategy in terms of playing chess versus checkers. And now in Silicon Valley, the people who like to impress others and one-up others will be quick to say, well, it's actually like Go versus chess, the Chinese game of Go, which is more multidimensional. And then one could also say, no, it's more like an infinite game, which is the title of Simon Sinek's book. The point is that counterfactual thinking can elevate your game to be in accordance with the most complex kinds of games. And without it, you'll be stuck playing checkers and rather poorly at that. Beethoven, Mozart, they saw it, they could just play. I couldn't paint you a picture. I probably can't hit the ball out of Fenway. I can't play the piano. But you can do my outcome paper in under an hour. Right. Well, I mean, when it came to stuff like that, I could always just play. And now to play us out, one of the most beautiful things I have ever heard. It's an acoustic version of If I Had a Tale by a Frenchman named Olivier Libot on guitar, his friend Guillaume on keyboard. I couldn't find a few of these last names on the website Le Cargo, which featured this cover. Olivier and Guillaume are joined by two angelic voices, Charlotte and Natalie, in a beautiful Paris apartment. You can find the video on YouTube, as always. I will link it in the show notes. And those angelic voices tell us what they would do if they had a tail. And now is that portion of the program where we get all the way wet. Footnote number one. The 28th of June 
1914, which is when Gavrilo Princip assassinated Franz Ferdinand. The 20th of June is known as St. Vitus's Feast Day, which actually commemorates not only St. Vitus, but shares the date with the Battle of Kosovo, which is when the Serbians battled the Ottomans and uh, apparently a Serbian assassinated the Sultan on that same day. So it's, I think, not a break, break. I think it's well-documented that it's not exactly a coincidence that this all happened on the 28th of June. I wonder, to think in terms of counterfactuals, if the fact that Franz Ferdinand was parading on the 20th of June and it had this sort of auspicious nature to the date, if he had come on a different day, would Gavrilo Princip have had as much motivation to get over the barrier to assassinating someone? I wonder. Footnote number two, it's interesting that when I looked into Franz Ferdinand, which also is the name of a great band, he was engaged in what's called a morganatic marriage. This is apparently sometimes called a left-handed marriage. And it's a marriage of people of unequal rank in royal circles. And I think that this may differ by region, I'm sure, in terms of how it's handled. But at least then, and for Franz Ferdinand, he was only allowed to marry his spouse, Sophie, who became the Duchess of Hohenberg, which I think means high city. He was only allowed to marry her under the caveat that she not actually attain any sort of rank. Of course, she is listed as the Duchess of Hohenberg, but she wasn't actually allowed to share in his royal privileges or achieve any real status in the royal family uh, or, or any sort of state duties. This extended even to, at official functions, she wasn't allowed to sit next to him. The only exception was when he was in his military capacity. And on that 28th of June, Franz Ferdinand was in his military capacity. And, and at least one historian, A.J.P. Taylor, claims that the whole genesis of their joint parade in the streets of Sarajevo came from him desiring that they be able to do this together. I'll not do my best Dan Carlin voice right now from Hardcore History, but I will read this blurb from AJP Taylor in Wikipedia. Hence, he decided in 1914 to inspect the army in Bosnia. There, at its capital, Sarajevo, the Archduke and his wife could ride in an open carriage side by side. Thus for love, did the Archduke go to his death. And finally, I'm so glad that this episode could feature If I Had a Tale. The driving beat, the swagger, the bluesy riff, that ringing guitar lick that opens the song and is always prevalent in the background of the song is just amazing. The lyrics have layers and layers of meaning and the chorus slams. And the lead singer of Queens is at his best. 
in this song. That lead singer's name is pronounced Josh Homme. The last name looks like home or Om, like French man. There's a great live video on YouTube of Queens of the Stone Age performing If I Had a Tale. In it, Josh Homme is clearly drunk, but the fans don't care and the performance is still amazing. In it, he tells us two things, for those who aren't aware. Apparently, the acronym for Queens of the Stone Age is not pronounced Kotza, it's pronounced Quotza. There's a, there's a U that's invisible there, just like there's an H that's invisible in the name Shri, which is S-R-I, if you haven't been following along. Also, he tells us, it's my favorite song. So, your host here must have good taste. In the song, if you listen carefully, Right from the beginning, there are multiple homages, or maybe we should call them homiages. There's one to the Do Run Run by the Crystals and Lady Marmalade, both of those featured in Phil's during this episode. And those homiages, I think, are somewhat critical to the song's power because these references to the past evoke a somewhat poppy and retro sensibility with a very raw and modern sensibility. So just to give credit where credit is due, that gitchy, gitchy, ya, ya, mama, whatever that lyric is from Lady Marmalade, which I kind of hate that song, actually. That song was originally written by Bob Crew and Kenny Nolan, and apparently, according to Wikipedia, was inspired by Crew's experiences in New Orleans and the sex workers in the area. The latter of those authors, Nolan, not the guy with the experiences with the sex workers, apparently performed the song Lady Marmalade as the first performance of the song with some fellow disco singers in a band called 11th Hour. There is actually record of this abomination on YouTube. I will not link it in the show notes. I will not play it here because it is so bad. I can't wish it upon my worst enemy. It's so bad, it's not good, but worse. You'd think for a second, if it's good because it is so bad, you're like, oh, this is maybe so bad that it's good. But no, 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 it's worse than that. It's so bad that you decide it's not good at all. Counterfactuals can be used for lots of things. They can be used for learning, insights, improvement, and strategy if used correctly and used methodically. Or they can be used for consternation about the past and getting depressed about the way things turned out in your relationships or your life. It's up to you to choose how you use this tool of the trade. Of course, Josh Homme and Quotza were thinking counterfactually when they wrote the song, of course. But the main character clearly has other things on his mind. Hey there, it's Shree. One last thing. If you enjoyed the show, and I sincerely hope you did, a lot of work goes into the show. If you enjoyed it, you probably want more content like this. You should follow me at Shree the Warrior Poet on Instagram. That's Shree the Warrior Poet on Instagram. I'll post content related to this show as well as 
content of this kind. If you've been listening to The Warrior Poet, you know that could include books, music, recommendations, and most of all, thoughts on leadership based upon my experience in the SEAL teams. And if you disagree with me, because I have pretty strong opinions, that's the place to do it. I can only text so many of you across the world at one time. So please follow me, reach out to me. I'll see you at Shri, the Warrior Poet. Take care. No, 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 no. Kevin, me na do it. Spita. Ah!